This is a GRDC podcast. Towards the end of 2018, I visited the New South Wales Department of Primary Industries Cowra Research Station to have a look at their perennial wheat program with DPI researcher Matthew Newell. Research has been taking place there for 10 years now, so things are quite advanced. In fact, one of the preferred lines is being tested this year for forage quality. Lambs will be fed in a feedlot and then their eating quality will be assessed. Now, I could have picked a better day for it. Cold and very windy, but... Well, it is what it is. This is an extensive trial over more than a few hectares. So I began by asking Matt if he could describe how it was set out. So the trials that we have in this paddock at the moment is at one end of the paddock we're looking at bringing in the new material that's been imported from the US uh, that we haven't seen previously. And then in other sections we're seed increasing blocks of the lines that have done particularly well in our experiment to use in future experiments. And then we have some replicated trials that we're using that look for seed quality attributes uh, of perennial cereals and looking at the difference between those and some of our annual cereal crops. How many different lines or varieties uh, have you got here of perennial wheat? Uh, So in this particular trial that we're standing in front of, there's about 15 different entries and they come from all over the world. So there's material from the US and a couple of different programs from over there as well as China and Russia. One thing I notice is that it's still green. Why is that? So the perennial cereals tend to be much longer lived and so they have a longer growth period Uh, and that's important to us when we're developing uh, perennial cereals because we think that their best deployment will be as dual purpose crops so that longer growing period before they start setting seed allows greater um, opportunity to graze those crops. So give me an idea of a season for them in terms of when do you start grazing them and when do you stop grazing them? This material that we're currently looking at it really starts regrowing after harvest. So if we can get some summer rainfall following the harvest at the end of the se- uh, December, uh, the perennials will start kicking off and regrowing. And so we've got that opportunity for grazing at the end of the harvest coming into autumn. And we can take it through until early spring before we lock them up to allow them to go for seed production. Yeah, look, I must, we must apologise to the listeners. That was a very, very windy day here, but I can't miss the opportunity of, of actually doing this interview out in the paddock because it is quite impressive. There's, I'm not sure what I was expecting, uh, but do you find that farmers, if they look at these things, that, it's, uh, that they get a bit of a surprise as well? Yeah, that's right, Chris. I mean, it's quite novel in the approach to the agriculture that we're looking at. It's a redesign of of our current agricultural practice and in the hope that we can create some diversity in the cropping options uh, for farmers but also to improve the sustainability of the agricultural production beyond the best regenerative agriculture techniques that we already use and so it has the potential to produce conservation techniques beyond what we see in the in the best you know direct drilling and stubble retention type systems that have been developed with annual crops. When you say they're perennial they do they last forever or do they have a lifetime? Yeah, so we've got two different types of perennials in in these trials. And so the first way that we derive a perennial is is by taking a perennial grass 
Uh, and we go through that domestication process that our forebears did 10,000 years ago with our annual crops. And so through selection we try and increase the seed size and the seed yield of that perennial grass and turn it into a grain crop. And that's, you can see in some of these plots here, is the, is the crop that's been commercialised in the US known as Kernza. But the other way that we can do it, and it's long lived, so it's a perennial and it'll last you know, four or five years and we've seen that in our trials already. The other way that we can get perennial cereals is through hybridisation and so all of our cropping plants that we see in agriculture today that produce grain have relatives that are perennial and so we can cross those two plants so we can take an annual wheat and cross it with the perennial relative and that way we combine the grain quality aspects from the annual wheat with the perennial habit from the relative. And that's what most of these hybrids uh, that we're looking at today have gone through that process. But we're finding that they don't persist. While they've got the grain quality and better grain yields compared to the domesticated perennial crops, these ones don't persist as long. So we can get two to three out of the years out of them pretty readily, but it's getting to them go longer and we find that the plant population tends to decrease over time. So is that what you're trying to address here, breathe that longevity trade into it? That's right, Chris. So the longevity is, is the key to a, a perennial crop. And so we're looking at the better performing lines that we've seen in our trial and we're trying to intercross them to develop lines that would be better suited to our environment. So all of this material has come from overseas. None of it's particularly adapted to our environment. The mere fact that it grows and persists for some period of time is a testament that it's a proof of concept that it will work here. Um, and it's a matter of us sort of teasing out those better lines and combining the better qualities to develop homegrown Australian perennial cereal crop. You talk about the quality of a grain. Where does it stand in comparison to your mainstream uh, annual commercial crops? So if we compare the grain quality of our perennial wheats with our annual wheats, we find that it's a much higher protein. And so for an entry-level grain, it would suit a stock feed market quite readily. The next step is trying to get a milling-grade type wheat. And although we have found that a number of those characteristics for gluten content and producing flour that can turn into dough that will rise is there, it's not included in every entry that we have. So that's one of the other aspects that we're looking at is that grain quality. What features this material has that would be suitable for milling grey wheats and use in industry and then trying to breed lines with better characteristics. Plant density uh, seems to be pretty comparable to the little plots of the commercial annual wheat that you've got growing here as well as a comparison. Yeah, well, so when we established the trial, we always sort of set them to say that they have the same plant populations. Mm. Um, and as I said, you know, this material does survive and grow in, the, in our environment. For the most part, it looks just like wheat. For the most part, yeah, but there are some very quite strange ones. Uh, so <laughs> one here, it, it, I think you said, is that, is that a, did you say that's a Russian one? or No, no, that's the American one, isn't this it? This one's the Kernza. So this is intermediate wheatgrass. Uh, yeah, just so to describe it for us, it's a, quite a, a long what? Kernza is intermediate wheatgrass and it started out as a forage grass, so similar to Phalaris or Coxfoot. And then, uh, so it produces a lot of forage. Um, you can see it's quite leafy, but it's got this long sort of flower stem, a bit like a ryegrass plant. But the colleagues in the US at the Land Institute have recognised its ability to have some qualities in its seed that would allow it to be turned into a perennial grain crop. And so through a series of selection, they've been able to increase the seed size and then increase its yield. So they've nearly doubled the seed size and doubled the yield in sort of five levels of, of selection process. And so they're continuing to go through that. And that's our first commercial perennial grain crop is, is Kernza, which is a domesticated form of intermediate wheatgrass. That's in America, not here. 
that hasn't been introduced here. I mean, it's sort of a funny fact that of all the forage grasses that we've imported into Australia and used, you know, like phalaris and coxfoot and, and ryegrass, we've never once introduced intermediate wheatgrass. Yeah, it, it's, it's a bit of irony there, isn't it, that the first commercial or a major commercial perennial wheat looks like ryegrass? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Now, you made the point earlier that the benefit of this is in the livestock grazing through the year. Just recap on that, in how much benefit livestock can get out of grazing these perennial weeds. Yeah, so we think that the best deployment for perennial cereals is a dual-purpose crop because there is trade-offs in resource use for producing grain as well as those plants having enough resources to allow them to regrow in the next year, and that tends to reduce the grain yield. And so to make up for that lost grain yield and for the profitable farmers, we're looking at the forage value of that material. And we found if through some modelling studies that if we develop them as dual purpose crops, then we can lift overall farm productivity by about 40%. And that's mainly through increased carrying capacity. So we can graze these crops when other pastures have limited growth, allows those other pastures to be rested for longer periods in the year and gives us overall better um, pasture utilisation rates. Why wouldn't a farmer just plant a a normal dual-purpose cereal crop? Well, a farmer could do that, but the advantage in the the perennial is it introduces some flexibility into his farming system. So in a year like we've had this year with extreme drought conditions, the likelihood of getting a grain yield this year has been very limited. And so under those situations, the farmer could choose to graze his perennial grain crop, but then still have the crop come back for next year. So he hasn't lost out in his initial investment. Okay. Talking about this year, it's been a a pretty ordinary year as we all know. Over there you've got uh, quite a green crop and it looks very, very healthy and you say that's performed better than a lot of the annual crops that you're growing at the station here. Yeah, that's right, Chris. So that particular line that we're looking over there is one that we identified quite early in our evaluation program as having particular interest, mainly because it was one that showed a degree of perennially, but also had very good yield over successive years. And so we've actually planted it out this year in, a, in an seed increase block for experiments that we want to run next year. Uh, and I guess that's testament to the deeper root systems that these perennial crops develop so they can access moisture deeper within the soil profile. And that crop's done particularly well, whereas other wheat crops on, on the farm have had to be baled for hay. Wow, they're so, yeah, I mean, that's, it looks very good, actually. <laughs> so are all the 15 lines showing some promise in matching or meeting Australian conditions? Initially, we, we tested over 200 lines. In the, so we've been in the, the perennial cereals investigation and experiments for 10 years. So we started in 2008. And we got hold of every possible perennial cereal line that we could possibly find. And of those, there was about 61% that showed some potential of having regrowth and producing grain over several years. And over the time, we sort of narrowed it down to a core group of about 15 lines that have shown good potential. And then we're using those lines to try and intercross and develop something that might, you know, improve its longevity and improve its grain yield over time. Are there any agronomic issues that make managing uh, perennial wheats different to the annuals? Yeah, I mean, that's a new area that we sort of want to go into. And, and so the ultimate game or idea for a, a, a perennial cereal production system is to grow them, to move away from monocultures, so growing them as a single species, into what they call polycultures. So if we could link three or four different species within the one field, and one of those being a legume, we can create a fairly tight nutrient loop 
that is relatively self-sustaining with the legume providing nitrogen for the cereal crops and so managing those types of interactions will be you know quite complex going forward but that's the type of the new experiments we want to run is looking at different mixtures in Australian conditions and the water limiting conditions combining very vigorous perennial plants together uh, you may favour one more than the other due to competition so it's a step back from that is to look at companion planting or, or relay cropping where we grow a perennial cereal with perhaps an annual grain legume or an, an annual forage legume um, that will self-regenerate but allow us to harvest that crop at the end of the year or we go into a relay cropping system where we harvest a perennial cereal and then another legume crop will come away and grow over summer. What about issues like disease? Are these crops showing any change there to annuals? Yeah, so that's one of the criticisms that the perennial cereal project gets is that we're creating a disease harbouring system for other annual crops. Over, over summer and that sort of thing? That's right, so that green bridge. But the first thing to say about disease is the testing that we've done has shown that all our perennial cereals that we have in the system are highly disease resistant. So they've got resistance to stripe rust, stem rust, leaf rust, and also some of the viruses such as barley yellow dwarf virus and wheat streak mosaic virus. And we get that because of the cross that we've done with the perennial grass. So the perennial grass, we've been mining uh, those genes forever in our annual wheat breeding programs for disease resistance. But whereas those disease resistances are single gene transfers, to get these perennial cereals to be perennial, we've got to bring over a whole group of seven chromosomes. So you've got pyramiding of genes for disease resistance. So the disease resistance in these crops is far superior to what we see in an annual crop. Also the idea of moving away from monocultures through to polycultures, we start using diversity within the field to control disease. And we've seen that in other systems where they've looked at grasses that aren't particularly resistant to diseases in wheat and they find that in those mixtures they have less outbreaks of disease. And also we've also shown by looking at those perennial grasses that are relatives of wheat, there's very little flow of disease inoculum from those groups of wild grasses into our annual crops. So you're pretty confident. Yeah, I think we've got it covered. <laughs> OK. All right. Now, is there a trade-off at all between the perennial nature of these plants and the grain they produce? Yeah, that's right, Chris. There is the trade-off. So in an annual plant, all its resources have been driven for grain production because that's the way it survives from one year to the next is through producing seed. Whereas the perennials need to use some of those resources to allow them to regrow for the next year. And so there's less resources to push into producing grain. So how is that manifested then? And so what we see in our perennial cereals is that there's some florets uh, within the head that are sterile. That's partly due to some of the complex genetics that's going on, but also because there's less resources to push into producing seed. So the plant doesn't fill all the florets with grain. And so what we see, and we've just discovered from a recent trial, it was a worldwide genotype by environment trial where we looked at the same 20 varieties over four continents and 21 different countries, found that yield was driven in the perennial cereals by tiller number rather than seed number per head. Matthew Newell, so the longevity of these perennial wheat plants is the big issue. Matt told me that some of the lines that he has in the trial are quite old. One developed in the 1920s, so he's looking forward to testing the new lines that have just come in from the US. My name is Chris Brown, and this has been a GRDC podcast. Music.